Good evening. End of uh, day three. I don't know, it's been uh, such a gift to be here and uh, it just makes me happy right? to have the focus on gladness, joy, happiness and suffering and to be here with my dear friends and teachers, deep bows to both of them, incredible kindness and wisdom from them. So they've been really encouraging us to notice even the small bits of joy or gladness or happiness that arise. Even these are profound. They can be onward leading. And they include not just those brighter, warmer heart emotion experiences, but the subtler absences that Diana was pointing to. A little bit of a reduction in suffering. (laughs) That too has an uplift. It's not maybe, whew, but there's still an uplift with that. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. So it can feel like these these experiences can feel like a rising upward, a swelling, the heart lifting. Can feel like a, a hand unfolding, you know, some tension releasing, a little or a lot. Diana um, really talked about the raft practice, right? And it's really important for us to recognize these moments of gladness, well-being. Not just the suffering, but the well-being. To recognize them, name them, see them. And also to allow them, to allow ourselves to be in their company and to feel them in our bodies. And some of you may notice that um, they don't last very long sometimes, especially when you bring awareness to them. And I'm going to suggest two possible reasons and, and an encouragement to bring your awareness to them longer or back to them if possible. One is you may have heard of the mind's negativity bias. This phrase that the positive is like an egg in a Teflon pan. kind of woo, flips in and out, right? The good stuff just kind of comes and goes. And the things that are more difficult, they're more like Velcro. The brain is kind of hardwired to pay more attention to them. 
by tending to them more, they stick in the brain more. So to counterbalance that tendency, we can, we can add joy, store it more deeply in longer-term memory by savoring it, appreciating it, resting in it, allowing it. Another part that can make, um, can sometimes make joy a little tricky is that it actually has some similarity to feelings that might be like anxiety or fear. So there's a vulnerability to joy. So it's helpful to re-examine, to re-look if we're skipping away from it. Come back, soak it in, be a sponge, allow it to, to be savored. And this is, you know, the strengthening of it is really the feeling and the trusting in the raft. Right? So this is sort of the idea of bringing raft to these experiences of gladness, joy, happiness, well-being. And really, you know, rather than thinking that we're trying to create something, right, we're really just noticing what's here. Appreciating and strengthening these innate capacities, natural capacities. Sort of the ordinary, but the wonder of the ordinary. The Buddha um, taught about this and how to sort of cultivate and be with and allow these natural tendencies, capacities to arise and He describes a farmer who works hard to plant and water a crop, but the farmer cannot command the plants to grow. Right? It's with the seasons and the change of seasons and the sun and the water and the time that the crops grow and mature and bear fruit. So in the same way, we're the gardeners cultivating the conditions for our hearts and minds to mature, to open, to be free. So our role as the farmer is to nurture and nourish the garden, our hearts and our minds, bodies, So it's important that we know what we're growing. Important that we know the difference between the weeds and the seeds, the fruit. And really one of the skillful means of... um, of growing these inner capacities is to do what, you know, Nikki described as working on the hedonic pleasures, right? Noticing um, the bunny rabbits, you know, noticing 
the sun or the leaves blowing in the wind, right? Some of these things that are, you know, maybe the tasty food, you know, these things that are coming to us that are passing pleasures, temporary. And this is very skillful because it sorts to help us orient toward. But maybe you've noticed that um, the newness of it wears off. So it's, it's not enough, right, to just keep noticing these sort of passing external pleasures. I'm going to not pronounce this right, but the udhananamic orientation, that kind of pleasure, right, that refers to striving or working on doing what is meaningful, even if it's difficult to achieve. Well-being It is a type of happiness or well-being that has more to do with contentment, more than what is achieved, right? It's more about this, this process of being with, turning toward, having meaning and purpose. This is the practice. So as gardeners, as we tune into our inner landscape, you know, we've heard this, it's important to pay attention to how we pay attention, right? How we pay attention impacts the mindfulness. So attention that is warm and clear is like the sun, right? And water for the plants. Um, another way to think about what we're gardening, another one of the gifts that can come in this practice are the Brahma-viharas. They can be thought of as part of the fruit of the path. And um, you're familiar with metta, the loving-kindness practices. When we appreciate others, you know, it's a basic goodwill, a wish for the well-being of others, an experience of friendliness, kinship. And then there's compassion, karuna, which is a resonance with the vulnerability of others and ourselves kind of an honest response to suffering. Am I loud enough? Am I being loud enough? Okay. And mudita, empathetic joy. An ability to rejoice in the goodness, kindness, and well-being of others. And the fourth is equanimity, upaka. I like to think of it as balance. This ability to be with 
be with whatever's happening, right? With this balance, simplicity. And um, I don't remember who it was, but probably Nikki talking about equanimity and the rising back up, right? So I love the reference of weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. They were toys when I was a kid, and they were a doll that had a round bottom. So instead of the the punching ones now, they were just these little dolls with a little face painted on them. So simple. But you, you know, you tap them and they kind of boop, boop, boop. (laughs) Yeah. And so, you know, in in some of the deeper stages of equanimity, there's not even a, you know, there's just, it just moves right through you. There's nothing to blow. (laughs) Yeah. So when we um, become the site for spiritual growth, when we become the garden, and we cultivate our mind, we let the welfare of all be alive in our hearts. And the flower of compassion blossoms from the soil of love, loving kindness. So I said at the beginning, I really love that we're talking about gladness and joy and happiness and suffering. And I actually feel happy about addressing and talking about suffering. Do you feel happy? I'm just curious. Because it's possible (laughs) to start to feel a sense of happiness when we start to talk about suffering. And uh, suffering can really be a beautiful, like, gateway to the Brahma-Viharas. Like, it opens the door if, when, we turn toward the suffering. You know, the Brahma-Viharas arise out of the flow of right now, right here. And, um, you know, to be the gardener of the Brahma-Viharas, we need to be, bring loving-kindness to our, our approach to gardening. A lot of chemicals and harshness and, you know, too much digging around, not so helpful, will, you know, affect the, the love that's growing as well as the weeds, if we're not careful. So we need to slow down, relax, become curious, take the time to do the recognizing, allowing. Can't skip it. I mean, it doesn't have to go all in the same order. Sometimes we're allowing the instant we see something, 
But as I'll talk about later, if we are recognizing but not allowing, (laughs) practice doesn't move. So, you know, I I think about um, loving kindness as... um, really uh, pretty foundational for all of the Brahma-viharas. I think Nikki was saying equanimity is incredibly important too, which which is really true. And my go-to is usually metta. But sometimes maybe, I know I have gone to it too quickly, as well. So it's important, like there's this idea, you probably have heard about it, of a near enemy and a far enemy for the metta, for loving kindness. So the near enemy that can, you know, sort of be in the costume of metta is attachment, right? You really, you're wanting something like that you want this person to be happy because you're attached to them being happy right so you think you're having goodwill but it's really self-serving in a way and the far enemy is hatred so i was um at a retreat at Spirit Rock, which is gorgeous. The lands, right, are just gorgeous. And they have a lot of beautiful walking paths, like a lot of sweet spots <laughs> you can get to and that are, you know, are, are really nice. Some have views, some are just sort of shaded or in kind of the woody spots. So um, this was one of my earlier retreats and so I got my perfect walking path it was a sunny day there walking started walking do a few back and forth and another yogi came along and she started to walk in a way that actually completely (laughs) interrupted my capacity to walk the path that I was walking. (laughs) And I had to like walk on ground that now to adjust, right? The ground that I had to shift to because I didn't want to move too far, right? Was sloped and kind of rocky. So you know how you're walking and you can be wobbly, right? So you're trying, I'm trying to walk slow and then I'm on this shaky ground and slanted and I'm feeling completely annoyed because it's hard to walk and now I'm you know uncomfortable I had the spot now I don't have the spot and I'm like the mind starts going and it's like this yogi what is she doing (laughs) she's supposed to be mindful she's supposed to be thoughtful She's supposed to pay attention to what she's doing. 
right? Isn't that true? <laughs> oh. So I, you know, I got pretty miserable pretty quick. I was angry and frustrated and feeling like, you know, uh, she was, she wasn't being mindful. And thankfully, (laughs) thankfully, I started to recognize I was miserable. I recognized that I was, that there was suffering here, right? That there was a problem. Well, what I recognized was still, I recognized there was, you know, I was uncomfortable and upset. And what I was trying to allow was that she was not being mindful. She was intruding on my path. So I'm saying the metta phrases, offering them to her, even though I'm really upset. And nothing is changing. I'm probably getting more frustrated, (laughs) more annoyed. (laughs) I just, like, yeah, finally, finally, I was able to recognize now, okay, Not only is this happening and I'm trying to allow, but actually I am really, really suffering. And I allowed myself to feel my suffering. Right? So I had to allow not what was wrong in the world out there, but I had to allow myself to recognize and turn toward my suffering that was being generated internally. And then to feel it. And then I could feel compassion not for her, for me. This compassion arose, like, oh, sweetheart. <laughs> Ouch. This is not working. So I offered loving kindness to myself because I was still angry. I was still frustrated. And then. I started to feel better. My heart started to lift. And my suffering eased. And by the end of the walking period, you know, I was like, I wonder if I can offer loving kindness to her now. And it's like, what for? She didn't, you know, like it would be fine, but what what for? It was she didn't you know, she she was fine. I wasn't fine. But when, you know, at this point I had so I just like equanimity, like I had compassion for myself, love and kindness, and then just like it was fine. No problem anymore. There's no problem. I was fine. So when I go back and just add a couple of comments about this process, I want to really emphasize I didn't see my my meanness, my sense of ownership of the path that I was walking on. I didn't see that in the 
You know, I just thought I was being a mindful yogi, getting to my path and doing my thing, right? And and then, you know, I got focused on her, not my suffering. Like it was all about what she didn't do right. And then really it was probably way too much to ask of myself to offer her loving kindness when I was suffering as much as I was. Right? So that's sort of like I said earlier, maybe we go to it too fast sometimes. Maybe there needs to be some gardening, tending, (laughs) noticing what's really going on here before we start to try and fertilize the plants. And just again to, to you know, sort of emphasize that what we recognize, recognition is really important, but it's also what are we recognizing? Are we recognizing the right thing? And then if we don't allow ourselves to be with it, right? Because I'm kind of doing a bypass, really. I was doing a bypass. There's, I'm not... It's not really practice at this point. It's a lot of mental gymnastics. And um, so, you know, I think also, I asked you guys if it made you happy to talk about suffering. I saw one person nod their heads, right? But what is the point of suffering? What's the point of suffering? I'll just propose for the purposes of right now. There's two points. Two points that are really important to pay attention to. One is the actual point, the tip of it, the ouch of it. Where Where is the tip pointing? The eye was pointing at her, but the suffering, the pain, the tip of the suffering was inward, was here. Right? So I'm blaming, I'm thinking she is the cause of the suffering. So I'm looking out there. But really, if I feel, well, who feels it? I feel it, the anger, not her. This is the point, the tip, the cut, right here. And the other point is the meaning. What is the meaning of suffering? How do you relate to suffering? How do you see the purpose? What do you think the purpose of suffering is? Do you believe there's a purpose for suffering? I do. I really, really, really do. To me... It's my friend. It's my guide. It's my companion. It keeps me on the path. Literally keeps me on the path. But I, I've got to befriend it, right? To have that sense, to let it support me, to let it support my practice.
I have a, a simile for suffering, the point of suffering. Have you ever ridden on um, Highway 1 along the ocean and driven off a little bit off the edge of the road and hit what they call the rumble strips? Yeah? And the car vibrates and it gets really loud and jarring. And maybe your first reaction is to get upset about it angry, annoyed, irritated. Yeah, me too. And then if you stop and you realize, oh, (laughs) the point of the rumble strips, the purpose of the rumble strips is to wake me up. So I stay on the path. So I don't go off the road (laughs) and off the cliff. Right? That's suffering. That's suffering. I just, you know, like, I just really want to emphasize, you know, this natural capacity. Loving kindness is a natural capacity. You know, uh, Brahma Viharas are often talked about as, you know, heavenly abodes, right? And I really believe that, but I also believe that they're, they come, they're, they're earthy, they're natural. They, they are accessible, ordinary in, a, in, in an extraordinary way. It's, you know, just underneath, just scratch the surface of greed, hatred, and delusion. And if you recognize the suffering, it's, it's a gateway to metta. Right there. As we learn to relax and trust in the practice and our capacity... The next Brahma Vahara is compassion, Karuna. The near enemy is pity. I mean, yeah, pity. (laughs) Pity. And the far enemy is cruelty. And um, I think, you know, sometimes when we want to connect with um, well, let me put it this way. If the near enemy of pity, pity is arising, <laughs> then it's important, you know, if we want to cultivate compassion, it's important to start with some reflections or phrases that respect that we're not feeling compassion fully, that we're feeling this sense of sorry, sorry for this person. So it might be, you know, that we want to even say, you know, oh, 
May my heart be tenderized. May I be open to your suffering. Just just the may, you know, the, again, this sort of not trying to force the plant to grow, but creating the conditions, the invitation, watering, sun, the opportunity for compassion to arise. Another phrase, if we're a little further along, might be, may your pain and sorrow be eased. And for me, what's really, really a beautiful, juicy experience of compassion is I see your suffering, and just like me, you suffer, and just like you, I suffer. Any ideas that um, we're beyond whatever kind of suffering we see in front of us are a delusion and create a separation. Just like me, you suffer. Just like you, I suffer. This compassion always makes me think about Thich Nhat Hanh. So I'll read you just one of his short little poems. You are me, and I am you. Isn't it obvious that we inter-are? You cultivate the flower in yourself so that I will be beautiful. Isn't that true? Yeah. When I cultivate the flower in me, you are beautiful to me, right? I transform the garbage in myself so that you will not have to suffer, right? Yeah. I support you, you support me. I am in this world to offer you peace. You are in this world to bring me joy. Mudita. Let's move on to Mudita. So... This is, uh, it can be such a delight when mudita arises on its own, right? You just see somebody like maybe even sitting out on one of the benches, you see somebody walking in the woods, you know? And you can just feel like that they're feeling the earth, right? That they're so in their bodies and so, you know, nurtured by this gorgeous place. The trees, the sounds of the birds, and just this natural upwelling of mudita can arise. And sometimes if we're having a hard time and we're in pain or struggling and we see somebody looking like floating by, really happy, (laughs) we might not feel so much of that mudita. We might feel the near enemy or the far enemy rather, envy. Right? The sense of, why, why can't I be like that? Ever say that to yourself? Why can't I be like that? Mwah. I want that too. Mwah. 
you know, right here is that gateway. There's the suffering right there. That's just the gateway, right, right there. So if we're in that moment and we're feeling envy, okay, maybe we need to do metta. Maybe we need to do compassion. Maybe, maybe, you know, we can just... you know, sort of simply see I'm suffering and they suffer too and right now they're having joy. Oh, and sometimes I get joy too. Just sort of to soften the heart a little bit and then maybe it's easier to connect and allow the mudita to arise naturally. And again, it's important to recognize this fruit when it arises, not have it be a blip that you don't really acknowledge, right? Like it's really a gift when mudita arises. Equanimity can also be a support at a moment like this. Equanimity is, you know, that ability to be with the changeability of experience, the rising and falling, the coming and going, the changing. It's like, it's like this. This too, it's like this. So the near enemy of equanimity is indifference. So... I've heard some teachers say it's like not caring. I don't feel that way at all about equanimity. It's not, a, I, it, to me, there's still a heart quality in it, right? There's a sense of like this ability, because it's open. There's this openness, right? Indifference is, I don't care. Equanimity does care. There's care there. Tension, awareness. The far enemy is anxiety and greed. So with this anxiety, I want to talk a minute about sort of one of the things that can really make life feel tipsy-topsy and hard to feel balance is big loss. Big, Big loss. Illness, death. And um, it can be really helpful to kind of orient toward that the fear or the anxiety is oriented toward a future, likely, or a fear. Anxiety is sort of this energy that gets churned up because we're thinking about all the things that might happen in the future. I have found that sometimes in my kind of darkest moments of life being off balance is that um, if I just tell myself that's future, that's not here now, 
there's something inside of me that just screams in protest. So what I, what I have taken to doing in those moments is that when the mind offers, it could be this. I actually look at it and I say, well, yes, actually, it could be. Yes, it could be. It is possible that it will be that. Okay, okay. Then there's something quiet, that that screaming quiets down. Because I've acknowledged this perceived threat. And then I can say, possible. Possible. Okay. Oh, what's the truth right here, right now? The truth is, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know where it's going to go. I don't know. So then I can go, well, what's here now? Can I be with what's here now? But before I can get there, there's something inside of me that needs, in times, to really say, maybe, yep, maybe. When I um, first came to practice, I was suffering a lot. And one of the <laughs> lead-ins to equanimity practice that is taught by Jack Cornfield is to, as you breathe in, say, breathing in, I calm my body. Try it right now. Breathing in, I calm my body. Let's do it a few times with your in-breath. I just love this because it's like breathing in deeper and the oxygen, you know, allowing it to flow and getting it to my brain. And it really does calm my body. And after I do that a few times, on the exhale... I say, breathing out, I calm my mind. And it's the letting go or the relaxing without exhale of whatever is not needed. And you could use words like breathing in, may my body feel calm, instead of I calm my body or breathing out, may my mind calm, whatever feels easier for you. But I spent a year, and I couldn't get beyond that with equanimity practice. It took me a year of every day starting my meditation with breathing in, I calm my body, breathing out, I calm my mind. And then later I could add, may I learn to see the rising and falling, the beginning and ending of all things with equanimity and balance, with calm. 
So I could apply that to different things that were going on in my life, that were changing. Just may I, may I be able to be with these things that are changing, with balance and ease. And not, couldn't make myself feel that way, find that balance, but I could wish it for myself. And then later, especially when working with, uh, like, you know, my children as they were growing and becoming adults, who, there's that near enemy of, a, of meta attachment, <laughs> right? I have this love for my children, this attachment for them, wanting them to be well. So there's another part of equanimity, which is to bring to mind this person. And it's so helpful just... So if you want, you can bring to mind somebody maybe you have metta attachment for. (laughs) Bring them to mind right now and just sort of allow yourself to connect. You know, know you wish them well. Say their name in your mind. (sighs) You, my dear one. Your happiness and your suffering. Are a result of conditions. Your actions. My wish for you is to be safe, happy, healthy, and at ease. And your suffering and your happiness are a result of your actions. May you be well. This real gift of letting this person be who they are. Letting them have their own suffering, their own process. I can't do it for them. And then something drops. Something inside of me that's trying to fix and do something that it can't do can relax. And I can find more of that place of balance, more of that capacity to be with someone I care about who's having a really hard time. When we're abiding in equanimity, we're not asking that others be different than they are. There's no expectation of that. Not demanding and we're not blaming. I'll read you a quote. Equanimity is a perfect, unshakable balance of mind rooted in insight But in its perfection and unshakable nature, equanimity is not dull, heartless, and frigid. Its perfection is not due to an emotional emptiness, but to a fullness of understanding, to its being complete in itself. Its unshakable nature is not the immovability of a dead cold stone, but the manifestation of the highest strength. And there was the bringing to mind of the tree that bends in the wind, 
right? The strength and the ability to let things move us, be moved by them, and be balanced in the middle of it. So all of this, you know, somebody, what was it? The, a, a cascade was used, this idea of a cascade, right? This flowing, this uplift, remembering. All of this is just a natural process that can arise with deep and clear attention. If we can be present for it, if we have that relationship to suffering, That, we're, that we need, that we need to stay on the path. I'm going to end with a poem. But before I read it, I'm going to take a minute to breathe and rest and feel my body. I invite you to do the same. Just letting the words settle. Letting yourself take in whatever was of value for you in this talk. Don't say, don't say there's no water to solace the dryness of our hearts. I have seen the fountain springing out of the rock wall and you drinking there, and I too, before your eyes. Found footholds and climbed to drink the cool water. The woman of that place, shading her eyes, frowned as she watched 
but not because she grudged the water, only because she was waiting to see we drank our fill and were refreshed. Only because she was waiting to see we drank our fill and were refreshed. Don't say, don't say there's no water. That fountain is there among its scalloped green and gray stones. It is still there and always there with its quiet song and strange power to spring in us up and out through the rock. It is still there and always there with its quiet song and strange power to spring in us up and out through the rock.